and me, my wife Alice, and me to be with you this morning, and I appreciate so very, very much your pastor, who's my good friend, uh, inviting me to fill in for him while he and his uh, wife uh, take a little uh, anniversary trip. I would encourage you to encourage them to continue those kind of uh, getaway events. It's good for marriage, and you need a pastor with a healthy marriage. And, um, well, I'm one of the uh, gray-head, bald-heads in the Presbytery, and um, I don't think I'm quite the oldest, but I'm not far from that. And um, I have been around the Presbytery long enough to know your complete history. I know things about Christ Presbyterian Church that some of you uh, may not even know about, and, uh, and I won't rehearse them. Uh, but I will say that as I sit here and worship with you this morning, my heart sings at what God has done uh, over the years in bringing this congregation into uh, to where it is today. I, uh, I've known all your pastors. I have, um, I'm a good friend of uh, um, Richard's immediate predecessor, who's now in Pennsylvania, uh, you trained him well. He's doing a good job up in Butler, Pennsylvania. And uh, so this morning, I, I want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters, your sister churches scattered across Middle Tennessee in what we call Nashville Presbytery. I'm not sure which number Christ Presbyterian Church is, but uh, we have 17 churches now in the Presbytery, and over the last few years, uh, we have been planting churches uh, rather aggressively. Uh, our newest church is a church in East Nashville, which we call City Church. And uh, it's a church that is, uh, is in one of the uh, blighted areas of the city, uh, pastored by Craig Brown. And their goal is to try to establish a multicultural church in a community that is really truly multicultural. And, uh, and then one of our um, more recent uh, uh, church plants is uh, the Midtown Fellowship, which meets right in the heart of the business city, sharing the facilities of a youth ministry called Rocket Town uh, that Michael W. Smith and some of his friends started a number of years ago. And um, you know, one of the former assistant pastors at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, where I pastored, uh, is the... Uh, planter and pastor of that church. So we've got uh, a lot of diversity in the, in the presbytery, and, uh, and we can be thankful. We've got um, several good campus ministries uh, in our presbytery. The original one, of course, was at Vanderbilt, which is, used to be, and I think still is, the strongest uh, uh, ministry on that campus in terms of student involvement and participation. Uh, at one time, we would have three and four hundred students come out midweek to hear the gospel preached by uh, the campus minister. We've also got uh, ministers on the campus of MTSU and uh, Tennessee Tech and uh, Belmont University with uh, PCA pastors at each one of those universities, and we ought to have one at Austin P. And I hope that uh, it won't be too long before we uh, develop a church in Austin P. Our presbytery covers not just Middle Tennessee, but uh, the lower tier of counties in um, in central and western Kentucky. 
And so our dream and goal is to see a PCA church planted in, uh, in Bowling Green and uh, in Hopkinsville and in Paducah and perhaps in Murray uh, at some point. Uh, but at this point, we have no PCA churches in, uh, within the bounds of our presbytery that are in Kentucky. So uh, I did want to bring you greetings from the various congregations, and I bring you greetings as, uh, as one of the former moderators of the uh, Presbyterian Church in America from the entire denomination. You are a part of a, of a movement that began in 1973 that God has chosen to bless and, uh, in an amazing way, and I could... Uh, I could spend lots of time encouraging you about the things that God is doing all across the nation and really around the world um, through this instrument. I, uh, I don't refer to the PCA as a denomination. I don't like denominations. They speak of bureaucracy and uh, rules and regulations. I prefer to speak of the PCA as a movement, and, uh, and it is a movement that God raised up in the uh, early 70s, and God has chosen uh, to bless it. And while I'm bringing greetings, I'll also take a moment to bring greetings from the churches in Metro Nashville. Uh, since stepping down as senior pastor at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, I've taken over the leadership of an organization called the Operation Andrew Group, which we formed following the Billy Graham Crusade, which took place in Nashville in June 2000. And uh, those of us who were on the steering committee of the crusade felt strongly that though we had seen a lot of wonderful things happen uh, during the days of preparation and during the crusade itself, uh, that um, um, we felt that God wanted uh, that momentum continued. And so we uh, formed the Operation Andrew Group principally to enhance and to bring God's people together uh, for the purpose of enhancing the work of the kingdom. And so we are all about breaking down walls, uh, denominational walls, uh, racial and ethnic walls, and uh, calling God's people to come together and to make more visible uh, the unity that God has given us uh, in Jesus Christ. And so there are about probably 200, 250 churches that are connected with us in, uh, in the greater Nashville area. And so I bring you greetings from them. They're Hispanic churches, they're uh, Korean churches, they're uh, large churches, they're small churches. They, um, uh, they even include uh, uh, members of the uh, Episcopalian Church and the Church of Christ, etc. And it's an exciting uh, thing that God is doing in, uh, in Nashville. <clears throat> so I bring you greetings from a wide variety of churches in Nashville as well. And uh, now, uh, in your bulletin, uh, your pastor asked me to give a little outline of what uh, I would be saying today, and so I did that. And he also said, we do something called notes and quotes every week. Would you put that together? And so you may, uh, you may need to uh, be a little curious about what I submitted by email to Richard before I came up. Uh, but I uh, chose to, to lift uh, something by Rubel Shelley. Rubel Shelley is a, is a very, very good friend of mine, a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt, and um, born and raised in West Tennessee in the Church of Christ, and he's still ordained as a Church of Christ minister. But he's, he is, um, he's a new breed in the Church of Christ, and uh, there's a fresh wind of God's Spirit moving in certain sectors of the Church of Christ. It's almost as if uh, 
there's been a discovery of grace and what the gospel really is on the part of uh, some of these pastors. And, and Rubel Shelley and Max Licato kind of lead that effort in the Church of Christ nation, nationwide. And um, Rubel passed uh, for many, many years the Woodmont Hills Church of Christ, uh, which is, um, I think they call themselves the family of God or something of that sort. But he publishes every Monday something called the Facts of Life, F-A-X, Facts of Life, and he sends out uh, what he writes uh, by, uh, by Internet Facts. And uh, I subscribe to it, find him to be a fascinating and insightful writer and a very readable writer. And so uh, every once in a while I'll find that. And if you'd like to know more about Rubel Shelley and what he's writing, he's got a website, just rubelshelley.com. And uh, you can eventually find Facts of Life and even subscribe to it if you want to or read some of the past issues uh, of, that, uh, of, of that weekly production. But that gives you just a little bit of a background uh, concerning uh, what that is all about on the back side of the outline. Now, this morning we're going to be reading from uh, Luke's Gospel, Chapter 24. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, I would... In- uh, suggest that you turn to Luke 24, and we'll begin reading with the 13th verse of, uh, of that chapter. Uh, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, and they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Uh, They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful, a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Uh, the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. Uh, But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, they, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he began, uh, he gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And he opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let us again pray. Eternal God, our Father, we are thankful for this record, this historical record from the, uh, from the life of Jesus. We thank you for the entire Bible, for its veracity, uh, for its, uh, its power to change our lives. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who authored it. And now, blessed Holy Spirit, we pray that you will give us grace to understand it and then to apply it to our lives. And we ask that as we grapple with the truth of this passage of Scripture, that you would increase our faith and uh, continue to, to, to shape our lives into the very likeness of Jesus himself. And we offer our prayer in his name. Amen. Well, the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is a fascinating period in the gospel story. Uh, During that 40-day period, there's at least 11 occasions when Jesus appeared to individuals, uh, to small groups, and even to a large group. And this being the Sunday after Easter, I thought this morning we would look at one of those appearances that took place on resurrection afternoon. And uh, it's a story that is sometimes called the, the loveliest story in all the Gospels. And yet, if you think about it, it's kind of an ordinary story. It's a story about ordinary people taking a trip on an ordinary day, probably hot, the road was probably dusty, heading to a small, obscure little village, and probably headed to a very modest little college, uh, cottage in that little village. And, and yet it is a lovely story, and it's made lovely by the fact that Jesus entered this picture. And as a result of that, these people's lives are changed, radically changed, in a way that they would never, for as long as they lived, forget the story, And they would rehearse it over and over and over again as if it happened yesterday. I would love to have been an observer to all that happened that afternoon. I would have seen a man named Cleopas and his companion, who may have been his wife, very discouraged, filled with heartache and remorse and a measure of disillusionment. I would have seen Cleopas and 
the other disciple, having just returned from Jerusalem, downcast, filled with a certain degree of hopelessness. You see, they had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but they had gone principally because they knew that Jesus was going to be there. And they had, uh, they had, uh, learned enough about Jesus, they had come to know him well enough as one of his distant disciples uh, to know that he was indeed the promised Messiah. And they fully expected that he would be acknowledged as king, that uh, the city of Jerusalem would acknowledge him, exalt him, and they didn't know how it was going to happen, but they, they saw this Passover event as potentially being uh, a history-changing event. Uh, when Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, would be acclaimed by the residents of Jerusalem and those who gathered from all over Judaism as being the Messiah, as being the promised king. And they could see this as the beginning of him taking his rightful place on the throne of David and eventually overthrowing the Roman government. But it didn't turn out that way. And not only was he not acclaimed as king and, and crowned, so to speak, as king, they were witnesses to the most horrific and awful event that could possibly occur to an individual. Crucifixion. They were probably there as observers, watching, maybe close, maybe at a distance, as Jesus carried the cross up the hill toward Golgotha, as he was shouted at, as he was jeered, as he was ridiculed, as he was spat upon, they probably were witnesses to him being stretched out on the cross and nails pounded through his, through his hands and through his feet. And they probably watched as the soldiers lifted the cross now weighted down with the body of Jesus and dropped it in the hole and then wedged the cross with big rocks to hold it erect. And they probably watched as Jesus suffered excruciating and terrible pain as he spoke his last words as the Roman soldiers punctured uh, offered him uh, offered him some relief with the with a sop, and finally watched him die. They were devastated, devastated. Uh, they all of their hopes were gone. Uh, their their dreams and their aspirations, their 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 dreams that Rome would be overturned and that the glory of David would once again be established was, was all gone. And they had waited around. And, and there was for a moment some hope, you see, because on, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, uh, the women came in very excited. They had been to the tomb and they had found it empty. They had not seen the body, but they had found it empty. And the disciples, some of the disciples had gone down and seen it Themselves, And they came back and confirmed that it was empty, but they hadn't seen Jesus. For all they knew, his body had been stolen. 
And so after waiting perhaps an hour or two, they decided to go back to Emmaus, their hometown, only about seven miles to the north and west of Jerusalem, and try to begin to rebuild their lives and deal with their broken hearts and nurse their wounded hearts. But as they walked along the way, probably not too far from Jerusalem itself, and as they talked and discussed and reflected, as they were deeply engrossed in conversation, hardly without realizing it, a third person joined them. Uh, he listened very carefully, and they were hardly aware that he was even walking along with them. And as the one who came listened, he began to enter into the conversation. And you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. How this person who came ultimately changed their lives, turned their darkness into a bright new day, and turned the sadness of their heart into joy. Now, I'll only take a few minutes, but in this story, I want to lift out three verses and three very basic truths which I think are critically important for us to know. The first truth we find in verse 15. And in verse 15, we find that Jesus comes. Jesus comes. As a matter of fact, that's the thing that makes this story so exciting. And now, mind you, the resurrected Christ didn't have to come. As a matter of fact, being the resurrected Christ, God himself, he could have gone anywhere in the world he wanted to go. Nobody asked him to come. And nobody made him come. But he came to Cleopas and the other disciples. And there's a big lesson there, you see, because the lesson is that the The living Christ comes and meets us at the point of our need. You see, Cleopas and the other disciple, they were overwhelmed with deep and profound needs. Uh, They were broken hearted. They were discouraged. Uh, They were perplexed. Uh, Their future seemed all muddled and they were perhaps filled with fear, thinking that perhaps they would be found out by the Roman authorities and they themselves would suffer some recrimination for the fact that they knew and followed Jesus. You see, all of us as human beings, from time to time, find ourselves overwhelmed in crisis. Uh, Sometimes that crisis will produce a heartache. Uh, Sometimes it will be a crisis that produces fear. Sometimes it will be a crisis that produces a perplexity or or an overwhelming, paralyzing impact on our lives. Sometimes it comes with a a death of a loved one. Sometimes it comes with a bankruptcy. Uh, Sometimes it comes with a failure of a marriage. Sometimes it comes with the death of a child. Uh, Sometimes it comes with a critical illness that the doctor calls terminal And sometimes it comes with just a deep, deep, dark depression 
that suddenly engulfs us and we hardly know how to break out of it. The thing that we need to remember out of this story is the fact that the resurrected Christ is very much aware of where we are and what we're struggling with and the issues that have captured us and that suddenly just have gripped us. And the resurrected Christ not only knows about it, he comes and meets us there. What a blessing it is to know. You see, I believe that this is what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples and trying to teach us during these 40 days. You see, Jesus doesn't have to be seen in order to be present. Cleopas and uh, his friend had no awareness that Jesus, they weren't even conscious. And when he showed up, they didn't even know who he was. You see, Jesus' presence doesn't depend upon our perception. It doesn't, he doesn't, it doesn't depend upon our feeling. It doesn't depend upon our circumstances. But Jesus told his disciples and he tells us, Matthew 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always. I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. I don't think that I'm stretching it when I say, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is closer to you than you can possibly imagine. You actually are participating in eternity when you live your life. And just when we need him, he's apt to break in. Not necessarily in ways that you can see him, but ways that you can know that he is there. He's not way off yonder somewhere. He is closer than we think, you say. He comes. Years ago, Alice and I were involved in planning a church in suburban Atlanta, and one of the families in the church had had two young boys. The father was a, a doctor at the VA hospital in Atlanta. And uh, the wife, who was probably in her very early 40s, uh, developed a very aggressive form of cancer. And, <clears throat> and she fought it for a long time through typical, uh, uh, t- typical processes. But she got weaker and weaker and weaker. And after... Almost a year, she was confined to the hospital, Emory University Hospital. And I would, I would see her just about every day <clears throat> as I was making hospital calls. One morning, I, I made calls very early in the morning. And when I walked into Marilyn's room, she was glowing. Uh, this woman who now was on oxygen. Um, this woman who physically was, was almost at the end of the road. But there was a glow in her face and there was a smile on her face, a radiance that is beyond description. And I walked in and I took her hand and I said, Marilyn, there's something different about you. 
And she said, oh, Charles, if you could have been here last night. I said, well, what happened last night? She said, I was awakened in the middle, I was awakened in the middle of the night. The halls were dark. The lights were dim all over the hospital. She said, I don't know what time it was. But I was awakened with a brilliant light in my room. And she said, suddenly I saw Jesus. Suddenly I saw Jesus. Tell me about it, Marilyn. She said, well, he didn't say anything. She says, but he held out his hands. And she said, a peace has overcome me, has filled my life like I've never known before. She says, it didn't last long. And then she said, I'm no longer afraid to die. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to going to heaven. Now, I won't take time to reflect on that very much. But you'll never convince me that that wasn't a real experience for her. She wasn't hallucinating. If I'd have been in the room, I'm not sure I would have seen it. But I am sure that the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord came from wherever he was to the foot of her bed. And he ministered to her. He's closer than the breath we breathe. He'll never leave us and never forsake us. And in our moment of crisis, we can count on him. He not only understands, he not only cares, but he's there. I want you to notice the second thing. It's found in verse 27. You'll see it on the outline. Jesus not only comes, Jesus opens the scriptures for us. I don't don't know why Jesus did that, because when Jesus comes along beside the the couple on the road, you know, he, he listens for a while, and then he begins to, and then he begins to open the scriptures to them. And he begins to explain to them what the Word of God says about the Messiah. And he, and he diagnoses their problem. He says, you know, oh, you have little, little faith. You have little faith. Now, the interesting thing about this is, how do we get to know Jesus? How do we really get to know God? Do we get to know God... Through nature? Do we get to know God through science? Do we get to know God through academic pursuits? What is the channel, the means that God has given us whereby we can have an encounter with him? Now, I find it interesting that Jesus didn't say to Cleopas and the friend, Hey, listen, there's a brook over here. Let's go sit down by the brook and see if we can't figure this out. He didn't quote from some Hebrew scholar... He didn't, he didn't turn their eyes to the sky and explain things about God from the sky. He took them to the Word of God. The Scriptures tell us, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So if they don't have faith, where are they going to get faith? <laughs> They're going to get it from the Scriptures. 
And so Jesus goes to the scriptures. And we're told in verse 32 that as he opened the scriptures, their hearts began to burn within them, you say. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the scriptures to begin to prick our hearts, to begin to pique our understanding, to begin to open our eyes, to begin the process whereby we can really hear truth. And while nature may point to the reality of God and the existence of God, and while we might read about God in various kinds of books, the means that God has given whereby we might encounter him is in his word. Then the third thing I want you to see as we close this morning is that Jesus opens the eyes of Cleopas. They finally arrive in the village. They reach the front door of the little cottage and Jesus acts as if he's just going to continue on down the road. And they say, no, 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 come on in, come on in. It's getting... It's getting late. It's almost dark. Uh, why don't you come in and, and eat with us? You can spend the night here if you wish. And so Jesus does. And then the story is told in verse 30 and 31 of how as they come in, Jesus takes bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he gives it to Cleopas and the companion. And the record says, in the breaking of the bread, he was made known to them. In the breaking of the bread, he was made known to them. Now, there's a very important lesson here. How does one really get to know Jesus? How does one really encounter him? How does one build and deepen his relationship with Jesus? Well, we Presbyterians believe in something we call the means of grace. The means, the avenues by which God pours grace into our lives. Understanding faith into our lives. And what are the means of grace? Well, the Bible is a means of grace. Reading and studying the word of God is a means that God uses. Fellowship with other believers is a means of grace. Worship is a means of grace. One of the ways that God blesses our lives. And then the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, is a means of grace. And so you you really can't miss it, I don't think. Because you see, included in this whole story, we see Almost all of the means of grace. Here's Jesus, and he's walking in fellowship with Cleopas and his companion. They get to the home, we, ha- we see prayers being offered. Prayer is a means of grace. And then the breaking of the bread, it's, it's almost like the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. Most of us in this room could tell a story about how our eyes were opened, how we came to know Jesus. And I would guarantee you that every story 
would include several, if not all, of the means of grace. Uh, you got to know a Christian, and that Christian loved you and cared for you and supported you. Uh, somebody encouraged you to start reading the Bible, or you went to a Bible study, and as you read the Bible, uh, your heart began to burn within you. Uh, people were praying for you. You started coming to church, etc. One of my former associates at, at Christ Press is a, a man named Roy Carter. He's now an associate at Covenant Press in, in, uh, in Green Hills. But Roy's story is a wonderful story. A wonderful story. He, he, was, he grew up in a, in a church in Nashville. Uh, I think it was uh, a Baptist church. But somehow he missed Jesus. He was a great athlete. He went to the MTSU on a baseball scholarship. And uh, he had opportunities to play pro ball. But uh, he, he chose to, 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 to teach. And he wound up being the baseball coach at uh, Vanderbilt University. And then his wife left him and took his two little girls with her. And she fell in love with another man and went on his way. And Roy says she was having an affair with a man. I was having an affair with baseball. But both of us were walking in darkness. And then the Fellowship of Christian Athletes director, Steve Robinson, reached out to Roy began to give him tracts, began to give him tapes, had them in his home, began to pray for Roy. And through all of that, Roy Carter met Christ and his life was changed. I wound up going to Master's Seminary out in California. God gave him a, a, another wife and now uh, four, four more children and now preach the gospel. He met Jesus. And I could tell you story after story after story, and you could too, of people who met Jesus. Really met Jesus. They'd heard about him all their lives. But now they finally met the risen Christ. I didn't plan to tell you this story, but as I close, I want to tell you. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a history buff. I particularly like the Civil War history and a few years ago, I read a good biography of Nathan Bedford Forrest and learned things about him I didn't know before. You probably know a good bit about Nathan Bedford Forrest. He was a man who is reputed to have started the Ku Klux Klan. He, he was a, a slave owner. He was a, a, a very, very mean-spirited, profane, ungodly man. Born and raised in Chapel Hill, Tennessee, down near Shovelville. He joined the Confederate Army as a private, and when the army, uh, war was over, he was a general, the only general who started out as a private. He was illiterate. It's often said that most of the generals in the Civil War graduated from West Point, but Nathan Bedford Forrest probably couldn't spell West Point. After the war was over, he went back to Memphis, Tennessee, and tried to make it in business, and he kept failing and kept failing and kept failing. And one day in Memphis, he met one of his former colonels on the street. And he said, uh, Colonel, it's so good to see you. What are you doing these days? And the colonel says, I've, 
I've given my heart to Jesus, and I'm now preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, Colonel, would you pray for me? And the colonel took him into a dark corner of a bank and got on his knees and laid his hands on him and prayed for Bedford Forest. The next Sunday, his wife was getting ready to go to church on Sunday evening, and he said, I guess you're going to church. And she said, yes, I'm going to church. And he says, I think I'll go with you. And so he dressed in decent clothes and followed his wife to church at the Poplar Poplar, uh, Street Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And that night, the preacher preached on this story of the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the wise man who built his house on the rock. And after the service was over and everybody had left, General Forrest had lingered. And he spoke to the pastor and he says, Pastor, I listened very carefully to what you were saying tonight. I fear that I built my entire life on sand. Would you give me counsel as to how I can build my life on the rock? And the minister went through the gospel with him and said, "Uh, I'll see you later in the week and we'll talk further about it. And when they got together a little later in the week, General Forrest had given his heart to Jesus. The story is that people could see the difference in his face. People would see him walking down the streets, and they would say, General Forrest, something's happened to you. What's happened to you? You, you look different. There's a, there's a smile on your face. There's a radiance on your face. And he says, I've given my heart to Jesus. And I'm a, I'm a new man. I'm a different man. When he died a few years later, there were more black people, former slaves, at his funeral than anybody else. Because in the last few years that he lived, his life was given over to kindness and service and support and advocacy for the blacks. How did Nathan Bar- Bedford Forrest meet Jesus? There was a colonel and probably dozens of others who prayed for him. There were people who loved him. There was the gospel who was preached, which was preached. And in the middle of that, Jesus revealed himself to Nathan Bedford Forrest. Last Sunday, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the most important event in human history, more important than the discovery of fire, more important than the discovery of a wheel, more important than the discovery of electricity, more important than uh, the combustion engine, more important than the discovery of nuclear fission. most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus. And it's important for you and for me. You see, because only the resurrected Jesus can change our lives, and only the resurrected Jesus can change your family, and only the resurrected Jesus can change your community. But let me tell you, this story tells us that at our point of crisis, Jesus comes. And he opens up to us the truth of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he reveals himself to us. He meets us. He changes us. And he's alive, very much alive. And he's closer than we can possibly imagine. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for this precious, wonderful, quaint story. True from history. And for the lessons that it has for us. 
Lord, increase our faith. Make us aware of the fact that Jesus is not way out yonder somewhere, but that by the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit, he is closer to us than a brother. And he'll never leave us and never forsake us. And in the moment of our crisis, he comes. And he ministers to us. And he comforts and he encourages and he changes. We bless and praise you for that. In Jesus' name.